Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and on this episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast, we are going to be talking about how technology affects both parenting and kids. To help me with this conversation, I'm bringing in an amazing human and writer, Sophie Brickman. She wrote a book called Baby Unplugged, and it is delightful and filled with a lot of good information and interesting questions. So, Sophie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Will you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Sure, Laura. It's so, so lovely to be here. So I'm a journalist. I'm based in New York. I am the mom of three, relatively newly the mom of of my third. So I have a five and a half year old, a two and a half year old, and a four month old. And I wrote this book mostly because I live with my husband who who loves technology. So he lived in San Francisco for a while. He worked at a startup and he started his own company. And now he works very closely with startups and he just loves technology and the power of technology to kind of you know, make our world a better place. And he himself really likes gadgets and tracking his own metrics and stuff. So he has, you know, various devices strapped to his body throughout the day. And I didn't really, you know, phase me until my oldest daughter was born. And she's now five and a half, as I said, but her third day on this planet, she came home and Dave strapped a little sock onto her, some sort of smart sort of device that was supposed to track her heart rate or her oxygen level or something. And, you know, I'd never taken care of a newborn before. I was a new parent. I hadn't slept in, you know, 72 hours plus or minus however many months that you don't sleep when you're pregnant. And I was like, okay, sure. Technology can help me parent and make me calmer. Like, great, let's do it. And then that night, in the middle of the night, the alarm went off from this device and was like bleeping through my house. And I thought something horrible had happened and Ella was fine. And it had lost connection to our Wi-Fi. We lived in like a, you know, crappy walk up with bad Wi-Fi. And I thought, okay, this is like a very crystallizing moment where I need to figure out how am I going to let technology infiltrate her life? And like, I've been really thoughtless about it in my own. So I sort of selfishly embarked on this journey to try to figure out where technology could help and where it really, you know, is just making us more stressed out. Yeah, I think you're speaking to something that a lot of us experience in parenting, especially that we engage with certain pieces of technology, whether it's for ourselves, you know, Facebook groups, you know, Dr. Google, or for our kids, things that are 
supposed to make things easier, supposed to calm us down, supposed to reassure us. And they end up doing the opposite. At least that's what the data is showing, right? Totally. And I mean, like, it really is a a personal relationship with technology. And some people I spoke to really loved the peace of mind that various pieces of technology brought to their house. For me, I found that by and large, a lot of the technology was very, it's all about optimizing things or either optimizing your kid or optimizing that moment. And it made me very anxious because I was like, oh my God, I'm doing something wrong. I could be doing something better. You know, I could be enriching her more. I could be more efficiently changing her diaper or whatever it is. And, you know, you're very vulnerable as parents and you're open to advice. Like you, you want information. And so it's sort of, it feels like there's a fire hose of information coming at you and a fire hose of products being like, I can simplify this for you. And so it's very hard to look away. What I found after doing the research is that it's not necessarily needed and that, you know, on a case by case basis, it might make you much more nervous than you think. Yeah, I think you're speaking to something that I've absolutely seen in my Facebook group. So I run a couple very large Facebook groups and I think I do a pretty decent job in them because most of my the folks who post in there indicate that they're the only groups that they go into, that they're the ones that they really enjoy being in. And that's through design and on purpose. But I do see things happening where folks are going to the group with questions when really what I would want to and invite them to do is to actually turn inward and sit with themselves for a minute to really sit with what's going on and get in touch with how they are thinking and feeling. I think that we go for the quick fix. We go through the kind of attempt to diffuse the anxiety or the worry of whatever scenario is coming up that we're going to the group for. And I think you're speaking to this like need to be really intentional with our use of technology and and really aware of, is it serving me? Is the way I'm interacting with it serving me? Or is it hindering something. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, like more power to you that people are coming to your groups and really finding those to be a a place of solace and care, because I find there's a lot of uncurated groups out there that are online. And I wrote a chapter about social media, kind of the question being, you know, can virtual villages either stand in the place of, of real villages or how best to have them enrich your life, you know, add to your life as a parent, And I'm a member of a bunch of them, and I became a member of them even before my daughter was born. And it can be incredibly comforting to know that there are however many thousands of strangers out there, what you're going through. You know, if you're up at three in the morning nursing and you're tired and you're this and you go on your phone and there are other people around the world that are going through the rest of this with you, it feels like you're less isolated. And and you really are in a lot of ways. But I think you need to know what you're going to the groups for. And like you said, you know, crowdsourcing information is not always the best for every question. Yeah, I think parents today, and you know, I know you've done your research, I interact with hundreds of parents every day. And so many of them are have gotten so conditioned to look for answers outside of themselves. We don't come up in the same you know, village environment where we are looking after, you know, cousins and little siblings, or we're interacting with lots of different parenting styles kind of, you know, throughout our childhoods. We're in these like tight knit communities. And so we become parents and we really don't know what we're doing. You know, there's no manual. And so we look to the experts, we look for gurus, we look for 
people to tell us what to do. And we are also hyper aware of that what we're doing matters. I think we're this generation of parents is more aware of the fact that what we're doing with these kids matters for their outcomes. I think it creates a lot of anxiety. And the, you know, the overarching like research on parenting is that good enough parenting is where it's at. You know, the mistakes, you know, balance in it, you know, some good stuff, some bad stuff. The good enough is great and wonderful. And that one of the biggest things you can do to help a parent is to increase their self-efficacy or their self-trust in their own skills as a parent. And I think that sometimes when we're conditioned to look outside of ourselves, it really gets in the way of that. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting that you're talking about this because the after you finish the book and you send it into the publisher and you're like crossing your your T's and dotting your I's, you're trying to figure out, you know, both what the title should be and what the subtitle should be. And so I like agonized over the subtitle and I wanted it to be something that really spoke to this feeling. And and I'm very happy with what we landed on. But for a while, it was about trusting your gut. And it's like, how do you trust your gut in the age of tech-driven parenting when there's so much information coming at you that you feel like you think you know what to do? And then all of a sudden, there are another 10,000 people saying like, well, why don't you consider this? And they're like, oh, okay, this is only the most important thing in my life is raising this, this child to be successful. Like, sure, I'll listen. Like, I'll take a look. And then it's very, very hard to pull back. You know, the, the poll frankly, like the evolutionary pull towards gathering more information is, is, is deeply rooted in us. And so it's really hard to look away and it's really at our fingertips. So I do believe that there are many moments where if you did stop and you took a breath, you would likely know what to do. The reason I wrote the book is because I thought I knew what to do, but I was like, why don't I go to the experts and get legit validation that this is actually what I should be doing? And that was very comforting for me. So has there been a point in your own personal parenting journey, Sophie, where you have stopped crowdsourcing and really, you know, moved beyond the like, oh, I think this is what I'm going to do. I Maybe I should just check in and get some validation and some confirmation and moved into a place of like, yeah, I know what to do. I know how to handle this situation. I mean, I'm still there. And I think that's probably like a journey that we will, yeah. I will be on with my kids because every, you know, every two months, it feels like it's a whole new ballgame. You're like, wait a second, now you're going to kindergarten. And now you like have a friend that's doing this thing. And you're not, I mean, like if you're constantly learning, but I did, I have a, a very good friend who has a child, her first kid was born a couple years before my first. And so she's like just ahead of me in this journey. And I started going online and getting all this information about all sorts of things, like medical stuff, people put, look for you know, what, whether or not to use the pacifier, like all sorts of things. And she said, look, if I could give you one piece of advice, it would be to pick a rabbi. And what she meant, she was like, just pick one person who's going to be your person that you go to for advice and just try to stick with them. And so I thought about it and I was like, okay. And I picked two people because I like couldn't just pick one. And I picked my pediatrician who I really adore and who, who I know is a medical professional. And then I picked my mom. And I'm very close with my mom and she's gone through this twice before. And I, you know, she was, and of course I have my WhatsApp group with very close friends and I will text about little things for sure. But for real advice about that kind of stuff, I found that a, a couple curated answers did way more for me and made me much calmer than crowdsourcing. Absolutely. I love that. And I love this idea too of picking with someone and sticking with them. I think that there's, you know, so folks who are in my world are moving away from kind of mainstream punitive 
parenting and more into connection-based and respectful parenting. And it's an isolating world when you're doing that. It's a lonely thing. It can be, especially if you're in parts of the country and the world where there's limited in-person communities and when your family did things differently. So when you are making big changes, you know, lots of the folks in my family, or sorry, in my, they are kind of like a family, (laughs) in my community are making really big intergenerational change. You know, they're the first people who are not choosing to spank their children, for example. And it's big and isolating because then they can't go to their mom or that one aunt, you know, because this stuff moves in families. And I just want to like see the people who are struggling with that. I'm glad you brought that up. So part of the research that I did for that, for the social media chapter involved going to many, many different types of virtual villages. And some of them are solely online and some of them are anonymous online. And some of them are kind of a hybrid model of trying to get people virtually and then to meet meet together. And one of the most surprising things that I came out about it, I don't know how familiar you are with Reddit, but Mm -hmm. I was not really on Reddit very much for many things. And I had this sort of idea of Reddit as being very like, black ops and like like the different types of people that that I usually think I would go on it and I went to the parenting communities on Reddit and it's very some of them are just plainly anonymous and then there's kind of another level of anonymity if you want to be like completely anonymous and just be able to share whatever and have nobody have any contact with you and there was an enormous amount of warmth in these online Mm. parenting communities because people were airing these grievances and airing these traumas and airing things about parenting that they really didn't feel comfortable talking about with anybody. But they found so much love and support in these communities. And I spoke to a researcher who found that kind of the ability to air taboo subjects often would encourage people to come out of anonymity. So they were like, look, this is my, whatever the case may be, I found out that my child is not really my child. I found out all sorts of of traumatic things. And they found other people like them. And then they came out of anonymity and sort of got, got a different bond. You know, the online reach can be incredibly powerful. I do not mean to to say that, you know, virtual villages do not stand in the way of it. There's a wonderful power in being able to reach people at the far reaches of the world that are like you. Yeah. And I'm really enjoying the balance in this conversation. You know, so this is the Balanced Parent podcast and we approach all aspects of the world looking for balance. And I I really love that there's a place and a time and then there's conscious awareness on, you know, is it actually serving the purpose that I'm looking for it to serve? And are there other opportunities? I really appreciated that. And I also like, I really appreciate that. I feel like most books that are about technology and kids really focus on the kids aspect of the technology. And I, you know, as a systems thinker, so I see kids as embedded in their contexts. And so the parents experience with technology absolutely trickles down and affects the child. Um, So I really appreciate it that you included kind of both sides of that coin. For sure. And I mean, I think just, you know, to speak more to the balance aspect of it, part of the reason that I wanted to write the book myself is that there are books out there about technology and parenting. And there's a lot of information out there about technology and parenting, but it's often very, they're on either end of the extremes often. Often it's technology is both a fact of modern life and an unequivocally good thing. And look at all the amazing things we can do with technology. And so let's like plug our kids into the wall and have them be particularly enriched and wonderful. 
And then on the other side, if like, if you show your kid a screen, if you're on your phone in front of your your kid, like they will not succeed in life. And so like live off the grid and just let your kids run wild. And I was like, I live in New York city. I can't let my kids run wild, you know, the West side. (laughs) And when I'm a modern mother, so I need, you know, I do have my phone and every once in a while I do need to put my kid in front of a screen and I'm interested in this stuff. How do I do it in a way that feels smart? And how do I do it in a way that feels reasoned and research-backed, frankly? So that's the kind of balance I needed to to thread. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be wonderful if we all, you know, had kids running around in the wild and with wonderful subsidized childcare. You know, that might be wonderful, but that's not my reality. I think there is a need and a want that parents have to, to figure out how to be balanced with that. I so, so agree. I mean, there's definitely times where I like fantasize about like moving to a remote farm with my best friend and just raising our kids together, you know, but that isn't the reality of what our situation is right now. So, but, but I totally appreciate that. Okay. So I'm super curious and I know my listeners are, what did you learn about balancing technology for kids? What are some of the big take home points that you found? I mean, I think specifically, I think we should talk, you know, we should, the, the way the book is split up, it's, it's technology for the parents and then technology for the kids half and half. So like, in terms of technology for the parents, there's a lot of technology out there for parents that pushes the idea that if you have a lot of data on your kids, you can somehow make the act of parenting simpler. Or you can, if you know more about your kid and, and how often they throw their pacifier out of the crib, they, you can make them sleep longer or whatever. And also that you should be tracking all this stuff and crunching numbers on your kid. And some people love it. When I spoke to my pediatrician, who was one of my like two people in my corner, he said, you know, we have pediatric visits at certain intervals because that's when we need to be weighing them, measuring their length and measuring their head circumference. And like, we're doing the monitoring for you, essentially. So that was something that was very freeing for me. I was like, yeah, maybe it's interesting to be tracking some of this data for her, but do I need to be doing it? Is it critical? No. And then so I talked about a lot of different things in the, in the first half of the book. The second half of the book about technology for kids, which is really a lot about screen time, you know, be that programs that kids are watching or interactive apps that they're playing or ebooks. And then there's a chapter about smart toys, like toys that do more than, you know, a block that will be kind of like sexy things for them. You know, I guess what I found was... You know, there's specific and pragmatic takeaways that we can absolutely get into about how to evaluate the programs that they're going on and how to, you know, choose the right television show for them to watch. By and large, for young kids, you know, less is more when you get them, when you agonize about what toy to get, and then they end up playing with the cardboard box. You know, that sort of is them telling you, like, this is what I need. Like, I need this box and, and the act, the care that goes into them turning that box into a spaceship or a fort or whatever it is that they're doing is so beneficial for them, so much more so than various toys or apps that will sort of quote unquote enrich them for you. Absolutely. You're reminding me of one of my favorite quotes by Magda Gerber, who's a respectful parenting expert. And she says that active toys make for passive babies and passive toys make for active babies. I think that that has always been a guiding principle when it comes to the toys that we bring into our home. I researched her at length and I spoke oh, to cool. who was the head of Y, which is, you know, the, you know, what she started. And I was really taken with their philosophy. And there are some extreme versions, like some extreme Y practitioners who are like, oh, I spoke to, and I had like a little doctor's jacket for my daughter because she liked to pretend, be pretend doctor. And they were like, no, you can't do that because like, 
the doctor's coat is can only be a doctor's coat. You want her to be able to put like all of the imagination into everything. That was too extreme for me. What wasn't extreme for me was like, go into your kitchen, get some bowls, get yeah. some things like your kids will have a blast. You probably have all of the toys that you need, you know, in your house already. You don't have to go and buy them. Veterinarian coat. Sure. There's lots of things. A, a dentist coat. There's lots of things. A lab coat. My brother-in-law is a chemist. And so my kids play chemistry professor sometimes, you know, like there's lots of things that a white coat can be used for. So I think that, yeah, yeah. Good. No, it's, of course it's okay. I think this is the balance piece of it. Right. But I did, I used to run a play group pre COVID and absolutely the favorite toy in my like pack of toys for these babies who were all under a year was a small aluminum bowl. Like that was it. That would, they always, everybody just droop right to it. They would, you know, have baby tussles over who gets to hold it and bang it on the floor. It's yeah, I agree. The the less is definitely more when it comes to our kids. And it's when you go deep as you have into the developmental psychology, it's not just like a phrase, less is more. It's like, it's better for the kid. It's better for their brain. It's better for their gross motor skills. It's better for their fine motor skills. Like the more the baby can do, the more active baby, the Mm -hmm. more active the baby can be, the better it is for him or her, which is very freeing concept for a parent in terms of anxiety over what it is that your kid should be doing. Like your kid should be playing with a cardboard box and an aluminum bowl at a very young age. Like that's appropriate for them developmentally. And it does, it works wonders for them. It's like yeah. them to exercise their creativity. It does all sorts of things. So like the less the toy does for the baby, the better it is. Yeah. And what's beautiful about this too, like I can geek out about play all day long, but what I've noticed in, you know, and what research says is that Kids who have access to passive toys, to open-ended toys, they play deeper and longer. And that's something that's really good for parents. You know, once kids, you know, start building in their independent play skills, and it is a skill, that gives parents a lot of opportunity for self-care, for peace and quiet, (laughs) to kind of be off-duty while their kids are doing a very important job of playing. And you know, when kids get used to being entertained either by their toys or by screens, then they they do come to expect entertainment in their interactions, right? And we use screens in my family as needed, you know, and absolutely. And it's a wonderful benefit to them at, you know, at times and places. But there's absolutely a time where kids come to expect the entertainment value that can get in the way of other things. Totally. And you're circling around something that I spoke about. I was, you know, I was talking to a group of parents about this and there's this question of stamina. It's like kids need to learn. They need to build the stamina to play on their own. Yeah. Capacity. They need to learn, learn to do it. It's a skill, as you said. And so, like I said at the beginning, it's, there's an idea in this technological age that every moment, like the instant gratification is, is at our fingertips. We should, we should have it. We should give it to our kids. And so if kids start to get agitated, often you'll see a parent throw a screen in front of them or, your, or try to like quash that moment if you look at that moment in a totally different way which is this is my little kid working through something getting stronger learning how to play on their own or handle disappointment or whatever it is that they're working through like that's a good thing for me as a parent to be instilling in them it completely changes the moment in your head you don't think you need to quash it if you quash it you kind of obliterate that moment of them learning 
And you steal the learning opportunity from them. You know that boredom can be where all this magic happens. You know, calm down a little bit. Like, let them work through it for a little bit. Maybe they're going to cry. Maybe they're going to get agitated. But maybe tomorrow, like, they'll give you an extra five minutes where you can do whatever it is that you want to be doing and they can be playing by themselves very happily. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the ebooks piece of things. I think that is something I'm seeing more and more, and I, I feel kind of curious about what you, you found in your research. Sure. So as part of my research, I spoke to a lot of developmental psychologists, a lot of neurologists, a lot of pediatricians, and, and time and time again, they would say to me, you know, like books, you can't improve upon a book. You know, one of my favorite quotes that I got from doing research was a, a pediatrician who deals with early literacy and he said, and I asked a lot of the same questions to different people. And one of the questions I always asked was like, what is the single best piece of tech? You know, because that's like a sexy question. And you want to be like, okay, if I'm only going to have one thing, I'm going to have that. And he said, he thought for a while, he said, you know, if I went to the smartest minds in the world and I asked them to build me something that would make kids smarter and more resilient and more socio-emotionally connected and just like better modern citizens, what would they come back with? They would come back with a book. And they wouldn't come back with an ebook. They'd come back with a print book. And the reason that books are so good are there, there are many reasons. One of them is that it is built for, for young kids, at least who can't read. It's built to be a shared object. Like a kid can't read on their own. They want to look at the pictures. They want to be read to. And so in the moment of reading to a kid, you're doing a million things at the same time. You're telling them that books are fun and that you can do it together. You're saying this is a sweet, unhurried time. Like you can't speed read Goodnight Moon. Like the kids just <laughs> won't pay attention, you know? And so, and, you know, verbal exposure has been shown to be very, very important for future success. There, there are a million benefits, but I really wanted to understand what's the difference between reading Goodnight Moon on a book, in a book, and reading Goodnight Moon on your iPad. And there are a lot of differences for very, very young kids. One of them is that the device that you're reading on is not designed to be a shared object. You know, your iPad or your iPhone, as you'll see, like, you can't really do the thing with your kid. They, you know, at least with my kid, it's like a lot of elbows come out when you're like, can I take that? And you're like, no, mom, like, get away. <laughs> so it's very hard to do it together. And also there are a lot of distractions. And reading is, you know, it's hard to read. It's hard to figure out what's going on on the page. It's a, it, it is a skill and it's enjoyable. There's a lot going on in a kid's brain when they're seeing words on a page and pictures on a page. And so distracting it is not beneficial. I don't know. We could go in, in a number of different directions. But by and large, if you're able to give your child a print book, that is really a wonderful tool for them. Yeah, I just want to highlight some pieces too. This is what I did my PhD. So I, I love that you're talking about this. And, you know, really when it comes to shared book reading, which is one of the biggest things that parents can do for their kids, the research on it is actually that it's more about the relationship that it builds, the closeness and the connection and the attachment relationship benefits than anything that they're really doing. I mean, those print concepts are learned as they're turning the page and learning the direction that, the, the, you know, the text flows. But really that relationship that you're building, the warmth and the snuggled upness of it is, is so important too. And it doesn't, go away with age. You know, my kids are nine and six and a half and we still as a family lay in our big bed every night and read a story together. And that closeness is, is just a beautiful thing to keep going in. 
I'll bring up something that came up after the book was published, but the, there's something called the NAEP, which is like kind of the national report card. And so the government takes, does surveys kids who are nine and 13 about various things to get a sense for how they're doing academically. And one of the questions that they started asking in 1984 was, how often do you read for joy? And this past year where the data had been collected pre-pandemic, so it was a 20, the 2020 NAEP scores, but all the data came from before the pandemic hit, was that the lowest number of kids ever reported reading for fun this year. It was a historical low. And so kids 9 and 13 are not looking to books as much as an object for fun and joy. And that is, the, you know, you cannot draw a direct line between screen time and books at all. There are many, many factors. It's multifactorial. But using screens does displace other activities. And one of those activities that it displaces is reading. And I think, you know, when you look at academic success and at how directly related it is to reading and being read to, it's it gets very scary and very damning as a society that, you know, I think it's I have to look this up, but I think it's one in three eighth graders do not ever throughout the week one time pick up a book for fun. And that's it's, Oh gosh, it's heartbreaking. It's awful. And so yeah. you can start habits early, like habits do start early. And so the earlier you can start reading to your kids, the better. I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends reading to your kid from birth, which like feels really silly because you're like, there's like a burrito here who like can barely see what are we doing? Oh, they can feel the warmth. They can feel the love. It's it's about, as you said, it's about at the young ages, it's about this love and connection that they're feeling around this activity. Yeah. You know, there's even research that babies who were read certain books in utero prefer the cadences of those books wow. outside. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we read while I was pregnant to both of the kids, <laughs> which were, I think we're on board. You know, I feel like we're kind of, you know, the, let's bring some balance into the conversation. What did you find around when technology is really useful and positive to bring into your home and into your kids' lives? I think one very specific positive that we found was FaceTime, particularly during the pandemic. Like we lived seven blocks from my parents, so we didn't make it very far. But during the pandemic, in, in the early days of, of the pandemic, when everybody was very, very anxious, you know, my parents didn't leave their house. And we hardly left our house. We were in lockdown and we FaceTimed every day. And, you know, there is something about the verbal back and forth that makes FaceTime and video chatting in general not as uh, negative at all in, in the eyes of researchers as other types of screen time. And so that's something that we employ all the time. I think, you know, similarly, like sharing photos and, and, and the photo stream was an amazing way to connect with my parents and, and, and my husband's parents and let them know what was going on in their kids' lives. And then... We are absolutely, we're not an anti-tech family at all. And so we, we watch movies and we, you know, we let the kids watch screens every once in a while. And, and I think, you know, one of my big takeaways from this was that if you can watch something together with your kids and use whatever is on the screen the same way that you might with a book, what you're doing is you're having a shared experience. And, you know, we watched Willy Wonka or the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory the other day, which I don't remember watching since I was very, very little. But, like, it was wonderful and a lot of fun. And now we listen to the soundtrack and Dean Wilder is, like, singing all over the house. And I think, I think there are ways to use technology in a way that's really magical and wonderful. You know, something that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with in, in your research and background is, you know, this, this term serve and return interactions, which is something mm -hmm. coming up against, which is having a conversation with your kid 
you know, at whatever, meeting them at whatever age they are. So like my, my son is four months old. He just started smiling. Like he smiles, I smile. Like that's our sort of return interaction. But my two-year-old is different with my five-year-old. That's different. But the idea is if you can have as many serve and return interactions as possible, it's really good for your kids. And one of the ways to do that is to kind of share whatever is going on in the screen. And so we try to watch things together. Of course, you want to put your kid in front of the screen often so that you don't have to watch with them. You know, I, I haven't watched Frozen all 900 times that my daughters have watched it. But, you know, I know what's going on. I know some of the songs. We can sort of like talk about it after they watch it. All of that is good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so many opportunities for shared experiences too. You know, just, yeah, it definitely can be very mindful. And especially as kids get older and start, you know, wanting to, you know, interact with social media and technology more independently or more with their peers, having built the practice of being involved in sharing the technological experience that, you know, in our family, we keep iPads in the living room, you know, and not in rooms in our family, you know, when we're, you know, playing games, uh, you know, mom's nearby, you know, and here to help having a culture of that. I think as kids move into the teen years, lets you be continue to be more present and aware of what's going on in terms of their technology. I'm not looking forward to those days when my kids enter the teen years and I have to start learning how to like set parent controls. I don't have to do that yet. It's so overwhelming. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm just like hopeful that maybe something will be figured out by the time that she hits anyone, but like, God, I don't know. I don't know. One day I, at a time. Yeah. Right. I think like the folks who are in that place, the general, you know, kind of takeaway is that kids will always be able to get around your parenting, your parent controls on, on your apps and devices. And so it's far better to invest our time in building trusting relationships with our children um, so that there isn't a need, you know, a felt need for moving around controls. One of the doctors that I spoke to who um, has done an enormous amount of research on, I think I interviewed him about the importance of play and, you know, how smart toys might not be as enriching as, as they are marketed as being. Because he likened early parenting to a bank. And he was like, mm. think about investing the time in your kids when they're younger. And he's like, the door doesn't shut at any point, but it gets smaller and smaller. And so when they're younger, if you can kind of put the time in, and invest in them. Then later on, when they're 13, 14, when they're having a, a fight about whatever, you can sort of pull on that as an investment. Like it'll accrue over time. And I like that idea. It's like you have these years, you know, it, it pertains to like quashing the moment with a screen or letting them work through it. If you let them work through it and you learn what ticks them off or you learn more about them, you're building that, that, that foundation and you're learning more about who they are as people and how they interact with you and the world around them. And later on, when you have that rock solid foundation, when they want to, you know, skirt something on a screen and go do something bad, like maybe they won't, or maybe they'll come talk to you about it or, or what have you, you know? I totally agree. All of this stuff seems really small now, but it, the, it does pay out dividends later for sure. Well, Sophie, I really appreciate this conversation that you've had with us. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't you make sure everybody knows where they can get your book? It's a, a great one to check out. Thank you. You can get it wherever books are sold, like hopefully at your local independent retailer, but you can get it at Amazon or anywhere else too. My website is just my name.com. If you want to, you can reach out to me there directly. 
And my hope with the book, one little parting thing is a lot of parenting books out there, which can be very helpful and wonderful are kind of more self-help or like how-to books. And this absolutely has, I have a lot of practical takeaways. How do you navigate this? What programs are better and how to evaluate it? But it really was a personal story. It's kind of part memoir, part research. And so Mm -hmm. my hope is that parents who read this will feel some sort of solidarity and like comfort in the fact that I'm going through all of this stuff with you. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other. And most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.